You're listening to the Remorseless Podcast. Hey guys, it's Beth Fisher. This is episode number eight. Can you believe it? So yes, we are on episode number eight. I am joined today with my very special guest, Rebecca Fleetwood Hessian. She's the CEO and founder of WeThrive.Live, as well as a whole consortium called the Badass Women's Council. So you can probably imagine why I really wanted to interview her, why we got along instantly, and why she has like a wealth of information to share. So I am so glad you're here. Thank you for showing up and let's get going. for joining us today on Remorselessly Biblical. I am always so excited to welcome our guests. And also, I'm really excited, you guys, to give you the backstory about how I meet many of these folks, because we were just talking a little bit before we uh, kicked off about how God's providence just introduces us to people in our lives that um, unless we show up and say yes, we would otherwise never have met. So today, we are joined with Rebecca Fleetwood Hessian, who is the CEO and founder of WeThrive.Live. So hang on, this is like a really cool story. So you guys who have been watching this will understand why I immediately connected with her. Um, So WeThrive.Live is a company that exists to ban burnout, build community and boost business. Um, Rebecca like served for several years, many, many years, decades, and, and with corporate clients and business process and all the things that also, you know, I have experience with, which immediately just drew us to one another. Um, so she's been around the world with coaching and consulting and training solutions while working with authors, which is another reason why I love her. And I'm also going to continue to say, write your book, please. Um, and like made all this amazing money and then said, you know what, I think now that I'm like good and successful, I'm just going to jump out on my own. Because eventually we get that in her head and go, that's a good idea until we do it and went, Okay, maybe not, but we're still pressing forward and persevering. So um, Rebecca is also just a huge connector and builder, and she's like loving the process of creating a brand for high achievers to thrive and not strive. There's a difference. She's going to talk to us about that Um, just in life and in business, like how we always talk about on this podcast that we are spiritual beings having a very human existence. And if we can continue to show up um, and be a whole person all the time, no matter where we are, that that matters, and that will help us be continually successful and thrive. Um, So, you know, it's just one of those things that um, we were immediately connected. And so the last thing I want to share with you guys is that Rebecca has her own podcast too, and an online community, if this wasn't enough for you to already love her, called the Badass Women's Council. And it's um, this site dedicated to stories of badass women. the last thing about that is that you also have um, stories about the badass women that are in your community and in your life. And those stories are called stand tall in your story. And you just sort of like continue to bring people into the fold and motivate and inspire and coach and uplift. And so Rebecca, thank you for joining us today. So happy you're here. I'm excited. I've looked forward to this all day. It's like, oh, I know this is fun. I know. This is my job. How is that a thing? Yeah. I know. And one of the things um, that I always share with the folks on here is how we met. Because I like to encourage people who feel very isolated, especially now, or very stuck in their own stories, or maybe they're going through adversity and they're like, well, you know, I don't have the right people in my life. And you and I both have had the blessing just given our past corporate careers and just kind of what we do every day of meeting a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so had somebody told me that 
15 or 20 years ago when I was on a houseboat in Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky. No, um, what's the lake? Lake Cumberland in Kentucky. Yeah. I was on a boat in Lake Cumberland, um, quasi sober. And I was with people with whom I worked. And one of my cohorts was married at the time to somebody who a couple months ago said to me, you've got to meet Rebecca. Okay. So again, you guys, you never know that the people that you're spending time with now and those connections and the way that you interact with them eventually down the road will bring other people into your life that you're like this woman or this person or whomever. This is an amazing connection. So I'm always encouraged by that. And can you share with us right now, just a little bit more, like elaborate on the Badass Women's Council and how you meet people and how you just got started. I mean, it's like a big question, but we just kind of wanted the backstory. Sure. Oh my gosh. I, I, someday I'd love to sit down and just ponder that connection story of so many people in my life. Wouldn't that be an interesting, like just to have like a whole wall in your office where you're like, how do all these pieces connect? Right. But I, I often have more ideas than I have time, money, or bandwidth to execute. But um, it's fascinating. I I agree that when you open yourself up, the connections will come. But first, you got to open yourself up. So that's a little bit of the backstory, though, really. So the Badass Women's Council was created out of my own personal need. So when I left my corporate job after 19 years, um, I gave a six-month notice. It was well-planned. It was my decision, all the things. And on the last day of my notice, I thought, okay, this is you know super exciting. I'm going to be doing my own thing. And, and then all of a sudden, I went, entrepreneur, alone. Hold on. And all of my very best career friends like the people you can really have tough conversations with and, and, and just strategize about things. They were all over the world connected through my work at my corporate job. They were in Utah and London and Chicago. There was nobody down the street in Indianapolis. And I thought, not only do I have to go find clients, I got to go find some friends. Seriously. I mean, I had the friends you grew up with, the friends you, you know, go out and have some drinks with, I had the friends of the kids activities, but to have somebody that I could literally call up and say, Hey, here's the strategy I'm thinking about. Here's the pricing or here's the whatever business stuff. I, I had to go find them. And so I started just being open and being aware and looking around and saying, well, I've got this client, she's doing some similar things for my old job. And I've got, and I just started putting some of the pieces of the puzzle together and just asking people, who do you know, that's kind of starting their own thing or is doing their own thing that I would click with. And I, and that's literally what I did. I went looking for friends and I just said to them, Hey, do you want to meet once a month? We'll just get together over coffee, talk about our businesses and and support each other. And there were six women plus me. So seven total said yes. Some of them I knew, some of them I didn't know. And on that first day of the first meeting three years ago, I was nervous. It was like seventh grade all over again, where your mom said you could have the party, but you weren't sure if anybody was going to show up. I changed my clothes like three times. Grown ass woman. I was like nervous to meet these women all of a sudden. But what we realized when we got together and started sharing our stories 
is that we all had this sense of we didn't know how much we needed it in our lives until we were sitting there receiving it Mm -hmm. in our lives. Mm -hmm. And we've been getting together for three years now, every month. And these have become my people. And then about, I don't know, weeks, months, maybe after we started getting together and I would post things on social media, people started saying, how can I get in? Now, the name alone probably drew some attention, right? So I flippantly called us the Badass Women's Council because quite frankly, I've been using the word badass before Jen wrote the book, but I'm not bitter. I'm bitter. <laughs> um, and so when they said, start saying, how can I get in? I thought, this is a thing. So then I just started paying attention to the stats on loneliness and isolation and how that really adds up, especially with a career woman who's taking care of everybody else all the time. And connection just became what I knew God kept tapping me on the shoulder and saying, I know you're building this business, but steer it in this direction. So my coaching and my consulting and so much of the business that I was doing was started to be aimed at building community. Yeah. That, and that's amazing. And I heard you just reference how God was like tapping you, which is like, to me, it's just sort of, we are all made with spiritual gifts. And then we have this spiritual formation process that happens over the course of our lives. And I remember years ago, I went to my mom and I said, God ripped me off. I have zero spiritual gifts. And she just kind of got quiet and then laughed like moms do. And she goes, honey, your spiritual gift is connecting with people and talking. And I'm like, that's not a thing, mom. Like I, who can't talk, who can't that. And the thing is the way that God makes us all with these abilities for, you know, kingdom work to draw people together into community um, when it is such um, a spiritual gift and it's so close to us. And it basically is just this inherent ability. We often don't look at it like it's a thing. We look at it like it's normal. That's just what we do. Oh my gosh. We are such kindred spirits. It freaks me out in a good way. Um, This is a part of my coaching process and has been from the beginning is I sit down and say, okay, let's talk about your unique gifts, talents, and abilities. And I don't, I don't talk about it from a spiritual sense, but God always shows up in the conversation. I just let that happen naturally. And when I first asked that question, especially women, men are a little better at it, but especially women, they just look at me and they give me that slow blink, like, uh, well, and then they'll say, I'm a good mom. Like, well, that's a role that you play. You should keep doing that. Then they'll say, uh, I'm a good marketing executive or whatever they are, their role that they play. I go, yeah, that's your, that's a role that you play too. Uh, Okay. And then you just keep peeling it back. And when we get to those kinds of innate things that, that are what make them who they are, they, they do, they say, well, doesn't everybody Right. Do that and because they're so apart. It's like saying, oh, by the way, your eyes are blue and your hair is blonde. It, no, no kidding. Right. Um, but when you start to like serve it up to them and then I say, and your gifts are meant to be given. So your job is less about the productivity and the achievements. It's are you showing up as the whole you with all your gifts and giving them away in a beautiful, generous, kind way? Right. I, I love that because you also said a little bit ago, too, that you didn't know when you're forming this group. And everybody kind of wanted in and people were saying, I didn't know how much I needed this until I received it. But what you just said is always interesting because as a, you know, self-professed badass women, right? People who are quote by successful societal worldly views, high functioning checklist kind of doers, typically an Enneagram three or eight, or just like this achiever mentality. um, Typically women like that are so busy doing that we don't know how to receive well. 
And oftentimes it means we don't know how to receive love well or affirmation well or compliments well. Because you're like, like you just go, why are you talking to me? You don't really believe it, right? You don't believe it. Especially when it's a compliment about your innate gifts and talents, because it feels inauthentic. Because why would somebody talk about something that doesn't seem like a big deal? They must not. They they must be making fun of me, or they must not. There's a there and getting my clients past that, and then teaching them how to affirm each other in their world in that way. So I teach about giving authentic compliments based on your unique gifts and talents, not on your productivity and achievement to get people more comfortable with creating that kind of relationship. Because then if you're not achieving, then you feel like a loser, right? Right. And so um, it's a it's a real switch in their heads and hearts. But once you see it happen, and then when I'm building communities, I build it so that they can support each other in that way and continue that on for the rest of their lives. It's just eeks. beautiful. I know. I it. <laughs> and that is your gift because you can see it. You're just like so excited by it because it just brings you joy to pour into other people to do that. Yeah. And um, I, I want to camp on these three things because you basically said to me earlier that there are three keys to writing your own Thrive story, which is essentially, I think maybe if we peel back that onion a little bit too, the Thrive story is who you were created to be, like your own story. You're on your journey, the way that God created you. So um, you talk about how, number one, we are all a little afraid and you say we are swimming in the sea of uncertainty. Can you unpack that for a little bit? I love it. Yeah. So as I was doing my own work, trying to figure out what my company was going to be and my job was going to be, it's all uncertain, right? So you, you come up, I knew job, I'd sold $35 million, had all the glass awards, they're packed under my stairs right now, taking up space. I'd done all the things. But then when you start to do your own thing, you realize that Everything that I started to do, I was bringing my gifts and talents, but then I was just standing there holding them like, now what do I do with them? Like, where do I, where do I give them away? How do I use them? And so getting past that was such a key part of even deciding what I was going to do. And then you start working with clients in coaching and consulting and, and you see that hesitation for them as well. And what's really fascinating is everybody thinks it's just them. <laughs> Yeah. And so it becomes an isolation factor if we don't talk about it. And so by giving it a name and talking about it as part of the human experience, it takes a lot of the pressure off and it it, it allows people to connect in ways that are more authentic. Because then when they see each other having the epiphany that, oh, you have that problem, oh, you too, especially when you're looking across the table or across the room at somebody that is what you've seen as that, like, wow, she's got it all together. And then she says, oh my gosh, I'm afraid of this or that. Then you realize, wow, this, her too. And the thing about it is you, it never goes away ever. Like, so I personified it. So I have a uh, two metaphors that we use. One is that we're all swimming in the sea of uncertainty. And the idea of it being the sea of uncertainty means that there are a lot of different ways to cross it. it, it there's no one way. You might backstroke, you might you might build a boat, you might, you know, signal for somebody to come help you across it. But there are so many ways to get across it. But when you do, what happens is then you're like, oh, 
I kind of knew how I figured it out. And by figuring it out gives you more confidence and courage to do it again. But the second part of the metaphor is that we inside our own heads are always our own first responder. So before anybody else can give us any kind of thoughts or feedback or affirmation, we're talking to ourselves. And so I personified, I call her the little bitch in my head, right? <laughs> so she's, she's that first voice. It's like, oh, you're not going to do that, are you? They already think you're crazy. Why would you try that? And so if I personify her, then I can treat her as a key relationship in my life because she's always going to be there. So I recommend that we put her in the passenger seat with a seatbelt and a snack, but she doesn't get to drive, right? Mm -hmm. So she's always going to be there. She's probably like, but I'm still, I'm still the one driving, right? And, and that helps me and the clients that I work with, again, make this part of the human experience. And a part of achieving anything that you want in life means that you're going to have to get through that bit of uncertainty. And we've all had a ton of it in 2020. And I'm kind of just sick of talking about it in that way. But uncertainty has been a part of our lives every single day of our lives. But we've lulled ourselves into this sense of we had more control than we actually do. So the thing I kind of like about 2020 is a little bit of that shake up to go, hmm, thought you had that all figured out, didn't you? And and that that forces us to kind of open our hands more and say, "Mm, maybe connection is better than control. Yeah. And that's exactly right. Connection is better than control. And a lot of times if I take that into a scriptural sort of correlation, I tell people it's about the underlying love, the love, the delivery matters more than the words on the page. You know, people get into so many arguments about this is exactly what it says. I'm like, really? Because I'm reading with my own eyes and that's not what I think that it means. So are we going to camp here until one of us like beats the other person to a pulp? It's also PS like, where's the Christianity and the love in that? And so connection matters more. It's, it's the relationship that matters more. And I think that um, in this period of uncertainty, it's the relationship with ourselves that we have absolutely had to, we haven't really had much of a choice, take a really hard look at and go like, who am I? Am I being vulnerable? Have I been being authentic? Have I been showing up in my journey, in my career, in my relationships? as the person that God made me to be. And so many of us kind of know that we float through our days and are like, to your earlier point, people go, a lot of women will say, oh, I, that's not a thing. I'm a mom, I'm this, I'm that. They have this vision in their minds of who they are. But when all of that gets sort of stripped away, when people face a crisis or an illness or a pandemic, it's like, am I really what I was trying to put out into the world? And that is such a really hard, but the most important lesson to learn. So, yeah, yeah. and uh, people, you know, all the, all the quotes on Instagram and everywhere, you know, everything you want is on the other side of fear and all of those things. One, it is true that you do have to get past that to get what you want. But, But two things I think limit our ability to do that. One is I don't see enough of women, especially identifying what they want. And spending the time saying they're so busy taking care of everyone else or letting everybody else's expectations dictate their lives that we have to say what we want, right? And so fear is really the only right word if we're talking about physical and imminent danger. If there's a tiger in the room, you should be afraid. If there's a tornado coming, you should be afraid. But everything else is just uncertainty. 
<laughs> Everything else is just the thoughts in your own head and just taking that next step to build the confidence to take two or three more steps after that. It's yeah. not really a tiger in the room. Yeah. <laughs> Unless there's the show with Bradley Cooper. What was that movie? Oh, you know what I'm talking about. Bradley Vegas. Cooper. Yeah. Vegas. Yeah. Hangover. Really yeah, yeah. So we yeah. have more to talk about other than just our, we can't get swept away with all the, <laughs> and cougars in our case sometimes too, right? Um, yeah. so, so here is my question. I hear all of this because you are such an outspoken, right? Your own proverbial badass woman. I imagine, I didn't know you obviously growing up, but I imagine that you were very outspoken from a young age and you had different opinions and you just sort of like were this headstrong, like, person that you are today, only a younger version. Did you ever get off of your own path and become somebody that you weren't to meet those societal expectations, like to fit in and belong? Um, sure. I mean, but not to the point where it, I always ended up, if I got off course, I always ended up kind of just pulling some people together and said, let, let, let's, let's lead, let's lead back over here. I, I had natural kind of leadership mm-hmm. abilities. Um, so never in a detrimental kind of way. I've always been pretty comfortable in uncertain situations. And I think that's largely because two things. One, I grew up on a small farm with all boys. So, you know, you're always playing with tractors or fire or, stealing somebody's truck to go get booze on a Sunday in Ohio or, you know, there was just, there was infinite ways to have risk in my life. And I was the only girl. Um, my uncles were like brothers. My mom had me really young. So I was just always in this risky environment and I didn't know it was risky. It was my life. It didn't feel risky to me. And so I think that helped me a lot. Um, but the other thing that really helped me is that my parents and my grandparents who raised me are amazing, good people, but they didn't saddle me with expectations, with religion, with um, education, with career. I can never remember a time that somebody told me what they thought I should be. Wow. Other than happy. That's amazing. Because most people don't have that. Most people right? don't have that. But people would have looked at my life and thought I was at a disadvantage. I was the first person in my family to go to college. And so people would have thought, oh, those hicks over there on the farm, right? Yeah. But, but I, here I am learning risk and learning boundarylessness. Right. And so I spent a lot of my life figuring stuff out. I just had this conversation with my son during the election. He was asking some questions and I wouldn't give him the answers about my opinions about about the candidates. And he said, number one, I hate politics, but um, God's my leader. I'll just go with that. But I said, my parents, I said, your grandparents, my parents never would tell me who they voted for. That was personal choice. They never wanted to sway me. They wanted me to have the experiences in life and ask the questions and figure it out myself. And I just, I care a lot about us letting people explore more than setting expectations because we're all unique down to our fingerprints. So I want, I've raised my kids to say, my expectations of you are that you're a good human. 
And anything else you decide to do with that is kind of between you and God. Like, I hope you can support yourself. I want you to be happy. I want you to be a good human. But in terms of career, like, go explore, go figure it out. Yeah, that is a very freeing way um, to be on the receiving end. And I think what happens so often is those expectations. I heard you say that you weren't like force fed religion. You know, your parents and grandparents didn't be like, look, this is the way to Jesus, or this is what you have to do to be a good girl. Um, that can be really well intended, but also for people that are also perfectionists and want to get things right and want to achieve and get the straight A's in school or whatever, and don't want to let anybody down, that can be also very, very suffocating and isolating. And what you also said is that like you just lived, you didn't know differently. You had risks. You were on a farm, you were with boys, you were rough and tumbling. And, you know, I, I can picture you like going down a dirt lane and being like, let's roll to the drive through and get a six pack or whatever. Like that. we all, we I all actually used to drive when I was 14 to get them like not even kidding because right. in Ohio, you could buy beer on a Sunday and it was only 45 minutes away. So they taught me to drive so I could drive them home while they drank beer in the back seat. Yeah. And see that you drove from <laughs> you drove from Indiana to Ohio? In between in, in Indianapolis and Cincinnati, I, I grew up in a little town called Greensburg. Mm-hmm. And so, you're talking yeah. to a girl who actually grew up in Ohio. So sister, I didn't have to drive anywhere. I just was always like, what time is this place open? Bonus. <laughs> I know. Because, <laughs> because the thing is, I but I also used to feel very guilty about it once I knew that what I knew wasn't what other people thought. Like I thought that the way that I was going about life and, and showing up in the world, like playing basketball and doing all like the boy tomboy stuff. I thought that was normal until girls would say, why, why don't you care about what you look like? I'm like, well, <sighs> you know, that whole thing. And you just know what you know. And then you start to question who you are. And there, let me circle because I never actually answered the question. So let me answer the question that you originally asked that. <clears throat> I get on a tangent sometimes. It's just, I don't get back there. When my career got to the point, so I, I before I worked for the last co- corporate company that I was in, I was in a, a staffing company. Um, and I worked my way up from an account representative on the front line with my office literally in a supply closet because they had grown so much. My dogs are getting ready to bark. To an executive where I opened offices and did all these things. While I, I I hadn't obtained a degree, I actually ran away from home instead of going to college because I get, I don't know, there was lots of reasons. But um, so I was working my way up in this business and all of a sudden I realized that I had these business skills and I'd been taught a lot of things through this, this company that I was working for. And then when I left there and went to this next place where I was for 19 years, it was very upper echelon business. It was, they were writing the books that other people were reading to learn business. Mm-hmm. And now here I was, I had, I then I'd gotten, gone back. I'd gotten my degree while I was having kids and traveling, like make it as hard as you can, Rebecca, that'll, that'll teach you something. And then all of a sudden I was surrounded by these people that were like, they knew stuff. And then I had this inferiority before my gut instinct and the things that I was learning while I was doing, I was opening offices. I was, I was responsible for millions of dollars worth of this business, running uh, multi-office P&Ls and teaching people how to do this work. And 
a lot of it from gut instinct and what my, my, the owner of the company was teaching me. But then when I got into this company where I was looking around and there were PhDs and master's degrees and the thought leaders of our world, literally the number one thought leaders in the world, then all of a sudden you're like, all of that that I had done was might've been an accident. And I'm not sure it's going to work out here. And a lot of my success had been based on my instinct and my intuition and my gut. That's another, I have a really good instinct and gut about people. And when I would try to use it in that environment, I had a couple of situations where people didn't value instinct and gut. And they wanted, if I didn't have a valid business case and couldn't back it up with all of the data and whatever, that it wasn't going to fly. And so those were the times where I, then I went and got hardcore into business analysis and business case and making sure I had a return on investment on all of my ideas. So I balanced it out because I thought, oh, my gut reactions must not be valuable anymore because now I'm here. So now you've got to go learn all this other stuff. But then when I learned all this other stuff, what I realized was all it did was just validate my gut reactions. I was like, wait, I I am pretty smart. Like, okay, this is okay. But there were some times where I was like, where am I this? I'm in, you know, and I'm walking in telling CEOs how to run their business and how to build culture and thinking, I wonder if they know that I used to light stuff on fire in the barn with my uncles and that I didn't get my degree until I was 28. Like if they find that out, I'm screwed. Like they're going to throw me out on my ear and never pay this invoice. Like that was scary. That, that is the best. This is again, why I love you so much. It's just because I, I get it. Like I would, I used to walk into organizations and be in like the corporate bowl, like the glass fish bowl of, you know, let's go into the boardroom and be surrounded. And my pencil by- skirt. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you walk in it and you realize that people have, they judge and they have these expectations and they will see what they see on the outside and immediately go, she can't help us. Is she even smart? Does she even have anything to offer other than what like we think we see? Right. And, and so it's just this really unique journey. Um, you also talk about uniqueness being our superpowers. And so I think when we mm-hmm. lean into who we were truly made to be and we accept it and we realize how powerful, like, let's be honest, how powerful God makes each of us, how unique we each are. And we use that and wield it from a place, not to put people in their place, but to say, I am valued. I have mattering. I have worth. I, we are equal. Like God loves us the same. Therefore, I'm not so sure why you think you're so smart, Mr. PhD, or like, it's, it's not about that. It's, it's about, connection and relationship and saying we all have equal worth. And so you bring to the table your gifts and skills. I'll bring to the table my gifts and skills. And as long as we're using that for the benefit to lift somebody else up and not for greed and selfishness and, you know, worldly control, it's unbelievable the things that we can accomplish because it's not us. It's not us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because my growing up with meager beginnings has given me a real advantage in terms of my ability to relate to anybody. I I can remember I had a couple of days where I was traveling on a private plane with um, Stephen R. Covey, Dr. Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So I was opening up 
teaching seven habits and he was teaching the eighth habit and we were traveling he and his assistant who was a friend of mine and, and just the three of us on and, and the pilot of course um and it was this out of body experience because i'm getting on and off these planes speaking to these groups and i'm realizing i am from a small town in Indiana who had no aspirations whatsoever other than to make sure I had Calvin Klein jeans on a Saturday night and somebody to buy me a six pack. Like the fact that I was there was mind blowing. And it just so happened that when we finished that three day stint, I left there and drove to my hometown because we had a family dinner planned. And so I went from private jet with the biggest thought leader in the world, drove 40 miles southeast and had dinner with my grandfather, my two uncles and my mom and dad in this little hole in the wall bar. And my uncles were having a rich discussion around, around why stills should be legal or something. It was it was it was like a moonshine discussion. And I I remember sitting and, and that's just that was that was just a thing, right? Like my, my family owned businesses. They were plumbers and roofers and my dad's uh, actually an engineer, retired engineer for Cummins, working people, right? Hardworking people. But the juxtaposition from that one hour time frame was so eye-opening. And I thought there's no way that God would put me in this kind of situation unless he had a plan. Like this is this this is orchestrated somehow that I'm going to figure out someday because it's too weird not to be. <laughs> I, I I could not love this more. And I have to tell you guys, this is a little bit like low hanging fruit because one, I didn't know the story. But two, where my head immediately went as I'm picturing all this is to a dude growing up in Nazareth, right? Like who people were kind of like, what are you talking about? This kid, this 12 year old, like, oh. It's going like, to make me cry. Well, it's true because what we don't understand is that we, I grew up in Northeast Ohio in a village. Like I used to walk to middle school and I would go pick up my girlfriend who lives in a house with dirt floors. It was just very meager, blue collar, no money. Um, people just scraped to get by. And so I knew what I, but I love those people. Those were my people. That's what I knew. And it, and it formed me and it shaped me and it, I never once thought anything other than, yay, life, right? Like I connection with people. It doesn't matter who, doesn't matter where, doesn't matter if you're um, or a Jewish, you know, carpenter from Nazareth, you can also come and save the world. So oh, I love that. Thank you. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. This is like the least of these. And that is why I have such a heart too, to get back to the marginalized and just to go, everybody matters. Like for people that think that yeah. they can rain down authority and say, I'm up here. Those people are down here. I just, I don't have a lot of tolerance for this. I just right. don't. Well, and the way that work has, has evolved over the, since, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s and with the industrial age model of work, control was the way that you increased profit. So when, when we went from farmers to factory, it was so we could control, measure, and optimize the practices in the factory, and, and that allowed us to be more profitable. But what happened was it separated us from the human experience of our work, and control became the means to profitability. And you think, you think about that happening in the 1900s and where we are today, 
control is what we all like. If I can just get my kid into the right college, if I can just get to the next promotion, if I can just, and and what I'm saying is this, that's striving. Like, that's like, I got to control it all. And thriving is opening your hands and saying, I've got gifts. I'd like to share them with you. And I'd like to connect in a way where I think that we can benefit from each other's gifts. And my experience is when you do that, you're actually far more profitable because you you peel away a lot of the dysfunction that comes when people don't want to be controlled, <laughs> right? Yeah. Whether it's the kid who doesn't want to be controlled by you telling them what career they should have so that they can get the paycheck you want them to have, not how they're wired for life and not the way God created them, but the way you want to parent them, or whether you've got the jerk boss who thinks there's only one way to sell what you're selling or create what you're creating. Control actually slows a lot of things down, but we don't open our eyes to it. And I, I you're exactly right. I love this from the standpoint of, the older I get and the more that I experience those exact things and realize you are spot on, the more I have been able to make the analogies to God. Because for a long time, I was also the girl that was like, whatever, God, you're not controlling me. I'm not going to follow like number seven in the Old Testament. I'm not going to say one more Hail Mary. I'm just going to go drink one more bush light over here. Like, you know, I'm just, I, 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 do you hear? Like I was selfish and I didn't understand the story. And I, wanted to be seen and heard and loved and accepted. And I wanted to know that I belonged. And when church, my ears heard that church told me I didn't belong because I wasn't a good girl or I sinned or it was very confusing to me in that connection to God and that relationship to God. And the older I've gotten, the more questions I continued to ask and push back and say, you know what, why do you get to decide? Like human being just with the title of pastor, why do you, you're a dude, like you're a, a pastor, you are a human also with the title. And so once I felt not disrespectful, because I really have a, a respect for hierarchy and for people who have um, put the effort in the work. Once I felt free to say, I'm not so sure you know all of this, just like I don't think I know all of it, but I think that together with our hands like this open, we can maybe learn from one another. But if you try and control my thoughts, yeah. I'm, I'm throwing two middle fingers up in the air and I'm just going to go the other way. Because that doesn't feel loving to me. That feels controlling to me. That feels like you don't see me as a smart enough person to say, I have some thoughts about this. And I think that God loves us and wants what's best for us. And if if that's true and he wants what's best for us, then maybe the way that I view him and get to him and am in relationship with him is not going to be the same as it is for you. And that's okay. It's okay. And, and I, he wants us to explore him directly. And I think that I, again, benefit in my spiritual relationship, my my one-on-one relationship with God, because I didn't have those church expectations early on. I think it's it's one of my greatest benefits. And so when I started exploring a literal relationship with God and studying Jesus and reading the Bible, it didn't come with a lot of dysfunctional beliefs and thoughts that were put upon me. And so it was pure and it was, it was beautiful and I chose it and I sought it out. And it was just this, it's, it's been about a 10 year journey. And so when I, I go to church now and, and I took my kids to church um, when they were younger but it wasn't forced on them. And even as they got older and they worked on the weekends and different things, I didn't make it a, 
if you don't go, you're a loser kind of thing. And, and I, I believe that as we parent, if we parent to be a good human, because that's what kids have context for more than they have context for the Bible at that age. Um, but if we can parent for humanity, they'll be more open to go search for it themselves. So I believe our role as parents is to model it but not control and force it. And so at times when my kids, I feel like they're going off in a direction that I'm uncomfortable with, I try so hard and I fail at it because, you know, parenting is hard. But I, what I really try to do is give that to God too. And, and my prayers are literally just, okay, here, here she is or here he is. I have one each, boy and a girl. Give them whatever experiences that are going to drive them nearer to you. And just please don't make it hurt very much. And show me how, I'm going to cry, show me how to parent so that I can stay connected. Because the more I control, the more they're going to pull away. And that happens. And when I feel that happening where I think, okay, I got to back off. And sometimes that means watching them hurt or watching them fail or watching them struggle. And it is the hardest thing to do. But then I just go to my room and I say, here's this little burden I've got here. I'm going I'm to lay it down at your feet and I'm, I'm going to try to get some sleep and just let me know what I need to do tomorrow to help you out. Oh, um, and it's, it's helped me tremendously. I, like I said, I make a lot of mistakes, but that in and of itself, I think is the best thing I can do as a parent. Oh, no question. And that is, you almost made me tear up too, because I've been through those, you know, my daughter's almost 24. And when she pulled away from me and when she wanted to do her own things, I mean, that's free will. And that is the story of God. And I often tell people it wasn't until I became, well, a mom, a, but then specifically a mom of a teenager when I realized, whew, this gig that God has with us, right? The, the rebellion, the, the, and you can read about it clearly in the Old Testament and the Israel, like none of us actually follow along exactly. And God allows for that. Like good parents allow for that. Like you just said, it's like, I'm not going to tell you exactly what to do. I'm not going to control you because control is not love. Control is not love. Control is I matter more than you matter. And God is like, I created you to be with you. I want to hang out with you in relationship to have this connection. And, and I see these helicopter parents and I see these parents that are like, you know what, you've got to get into Harvard or wherever and be on the lacrosse team and go to these school. Like, okay, really? Because all you're really doing is fostering a selfish individual and God does not foster selfishness. He fosters selflessness. And to your earlier point about modeling, Jesus, right? Jesus came here yeah. and showed us the ultimate sacrifice of selflessness. So yeah. Well, thank you. Okay. So this is my segue into our last four questions because I love that you just <sighs> all of that about how you just lay everything down at God's feet and are like, I can't right now. Well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll even give you a visual because this could help some, some of your list, listeners. This came to me last night and I've shared it three times with friends today and all of them said it was hugely helpful. So last night I was feeling a burden about one of my kids that I'd made a mistake and I'd handled it poorly. And I was feeling a burden about I'd given a draft copy of my really messy book to a friend to read. And that's vulnerable in the sea of uncertainty. I was just like storming through it. And so I had this picture of Jesus sitting, sitting at this table, like at a, like at a trade show or something. (laughs) And on the table is a sign and it says, lay your burdens here. And there's like this, this like circle thing. I got this whole vision came to me and I, and, and literally what you were supposed to do is you were literally just supposed to walk by and lay it down and keep moving. Like that was it. And so that's what I did last night. And I said, I'm going to just put this right here and I'm, 
I'm going to go to bed. And um, I went right to sleep after that. And I, I don't know. Hopefully that's helpful. It is. It is. It's helpful to all of us because I'm good. I'm going to let these dogs out. Just keep going. <laughs> you guys, this is why I love having people on the podcast who are real, authentic and vulnerable and living real lives in the midst of a pandemic and are like, hey, time out. People need something. My, the my dogs are barking. <laughs> See? Yes. Okay. The four questions. So how do you define God? You've given us some backstory about your upbringing and how you didn't have a lot of expectations about who God is and what you must do to be in relationship with him. So how do you define God? I, I, the word all is all that I've got for it because I have an allergic reaction to, um, Bible-y words that are meant to shame. Uh, yeah. And so I could come at you with um, all kinds of Bible-y words that would maybe make me sound smart. Like I, but that's not the relationship I've had with him. I sought him out when I didn't know a single scripture. I didn't, I, I couldn't have told you w- what books of the Bible were in what places. I, I maybe had read 20 pages of the Bible in total my entire first 40 years of my life. And so that's not the relationship I sought with him. I had conversations with him and I learned to pray in my language of my words and my needs and my humor and my inappropriateness and all of the things. And so the word all is how I picture this relationship I have with him now, all the experiences I've had, all the dreams and hopes that I have, all of it. I mean, from the crazy days of partying like a rock star to standing on stage with, uh, you know, the world's best business lead, all of it. He brought me and he can take it away if he chooses to. And it's just all that's, that's the word that makes the most sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I as well define God as. And um, Maya Angelou did as well with Oprah mm-hmm. when Oprah asked that question all oh, because there's nothing. Oh, is that seriously? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. On Super oh, Soul. Well, and it's true. It's because Maya Angelou is one of the most, uh, to me, beautiful humans when she was alive and just the profound things that she said in a way that was authentic like you. Like you were like, look, I don't know how to do it right. But, you know, I think when Maya Angelou's daughter, I might be messing this up a little bit, but had um, a child out of wedlock and, and Maya Angelou was like, yeah, we're just going to shower this kid with love. Like, what's the problem here? Right. I don't see a problem. I see love. I see a human being. And so the things that she said, I think the reason that people resonate so much with truth and authenticity and vulnerability is because it's everything that we want to be and things like um, scripted bible words <laughs> make us feel like we're not those things. Um, and to your point, when you show up authentically in relationship with God, that's, that's what he wants. Like, that's it. He's everything all the time. And you're right. He's the culmination of before we were born, when we were young today. And, and that innate sense that I had when I was a little girl too, like I would have those questions. I never picked up a Bible. I was Catholic. I didn't have a Bible. I had a missalette and a box where the light turned green. And I was like, I'm so sorry. How many am I on? I'm so sorry. Can I drink beer tomorrow? Like, that's just what I did. Right. Right. I can laugh about it now because I'm that far removed from it, but it tore me apart. I just felt like this constant sinner, but I never read a Bible, but I had this inner connection 
this mm-hmm. inner longing to be loved. And I'm like, there's something out there that is drawing me in. That's all God. All, mm-hmm. all, all. So thank you. I love that answer. Wow. One word, it's all. And I didn't know that's how she responded. I, I'm sure I saw it at some point, but that's interesting. Yeah. I just immediately resonated like, amen, sister. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So what um, on your journey, Rebecca, what's the most difficult decision you've had to make? I divorced about five years ago after 18 years of marriage, which is a long ass time. Um, and it was, it was the first time I, I actually chose partly to marry my now ex-husband because his family was very, um, Christian and went to church every Sunday and they, they had religion dialed in. Mm-hmm. And I thought, great, because I didn't have that. And I want, I want more, I thought I wanted more structure for my kids um, with religion. I later learned that that's not exactly what I wanted. But so that was a huge part of our, of, of me marrying him. And so it was the first time that I felt really challenged that what I was reading about marriage and what I was experiencing, and no matter how hard I prayed, we struggled for 18 years. And I learned to build a really great life because I'm annoyingly optimistic as one of my other unique gifts and talents. And But I kept reading all of the relationship books and the Christian books and the Christian wife books. And I thought, I'm doing everything I can. Why is this still not working? And so it was the first time that I was really challenged in my faith in a way that I I didn't get it and I couldn't, I couldn't fix it. I tried, I mean, six therapists and a million books and all of the effort, all of the effort, and it still didn't work. And I finally just opened my clenched fists of control and I, I had pneumonia for two months. It gave me a lot of time to think and ponder and talk to God. And I just said to him, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. I, I don't know who I am anymore. I'm exhausted. He's exhausted. We were physically killing each other, trying to stay together with health issues and stress and all the things. And I thought, this can't be it. Like, this can't be it. We've tried and we've tried. And I I remember distinctly one day it snowed like crazy. And um, we lived way out in the country. You know, we had all the, from outside, it looked like the perfect thing. You know, 23 acres, a beautiful estate lake, two kids, a dog, like it looked perfect and it was not. And I remember saying, you know, just sitting there in my room surrounded by snow, had been sick for a month. And I just heard him say, I will give you grace. Wow. And I thought, this is the God that I know and love. Because I also had learned about so many of my friends who had church hurt and even my church had hurt some people. And I thought that those are people, exactly what you said earlier. Those are people. The God I know um, knows that we've tried everything that we can try and it's it's not going to work. But it was, um, it was rough. Yeah. Yeah. No, rough. thank you for being really vulnerable with that. I know a lot of our viewers and listeners, I mean, even if you just look at statistics, right, have also gone through divorces. I mean, it's just a, it's a crazy high number. And my parents have been married for 40. I don't do the math one year longer than me. I'm like, really? What were you doing in Niagara Falls, mom, dad on the, in the back of the Oldsmobile? I'm pretty quick on the math update. I'm like, I got it. Steve did a back seat too, but so there you go. I'm like, wow. Okay. Wait a minute. I literally was. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my goodness. But um, I, I, they've been married 48 years. So, so my model has been, man, you just stay married. Um, I've been married three times. Um, my husband, I absolutely adore. And I, you guys, I was never, ever going to get married again. Like I was just done. I was so hurt and I was so shamed and I was so already like going to hell twice for the two previous failures. And that's what, that's what I thought. Um, but I was awake for about a year every night laying in bed. I couldn't sleep. My second husband after 12 or 13 years had left me. And, um, now in both of our defenses, we got married and I was dying, I was dying of leukemia. I was 24. He said, you we're getting married. I don't think he asked nicely. He's like, we're getting married. I'm like, okay. Um, so that's the US part could have been like Tuesday. I, I was not to right. live. I just was like, I couldn't think clearly. But he didn't the- realize what the long-term commitment was. He was like, I thought this was a short-term deal. <laughs> I'm like, I'm on my deathbed. How long do I have to I feel like I can use really inappropriate humor with you already. So that's where my brain went. If it even went anywhere. One, I was just like so afraid of this fear of the unknown uncertainty and thinking Olivia's going to grow up without a mom. But then I was like, okay, I'm just doing the math here. If I'm only supposed to live a month, well, I can suck up another marriage for a month. What the hell? Like, okay, that's fine by me. And then I get out of my transplant and went, wait, what? Like, okay, we're married. It was like an Elvis thing in Vegas, going back to Vegas. But but I stayed and I was committed and I, I formed a family unit. I couldn't have children any longer after my transplant. So Olivia had like this family unit cause he had kids as well. Um, and then when he left me, I was distraught. I was broken. I was, a f- di- now mind you, we didn't have the great relationship, but the institution and the commitment in the family structure that I had. And also PS, like I also loved his ex-wife more than I loved him. I think I love the kid's mom because I love badass women. And I was like, she's amazing. Why did you tell me otherwise? Um, and so I, for a year, couldn't sleep. I would just run myself ragged during the day, trying to fix myself and make myself feel better. And I would go to bed and just lay awake and say to God, I, I would weep. And I would just say, I'm sorry please don't hate me. Please still use me. Is Can I be used? I know I'm broken. I know I'm damaged goods. I know I let you down. Like all of those things. Right, right. And I finally just heard him say, I love you. You're okay. I love you. Come to me. All you who are weary, I know you're weary. And I'm going to give you the rest that you need so that you can come out on the other side of this and be who I created you to be. Right, right. And I just, now I'm never um, questioning of that. I never look back because East and West and I'm forgiven. And we, we all make decisions in life, in the moment with the information that we have to date. Yeah. You know? It's right. like Renee Brown always says too, right? We're forming these stories in our head based on the information that we have at the time. Yeah. Right. But sometimes misjudge that because of what people tell us or a church told us or our friends told us, or even the stuff that we, we think we just make up. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you sharing that. Well, and that's that's why I do read my Bible every single day now, every single day, because that's I know that word is true. It doesn't come with anybody else's interpretation. It's whatever he needs me to hear that day, and I can read the same scripture. And I, I, I if something is really profound for me, I'll put a date and maybe a little note in there, and to see what something meant to me three years ago versus what it means now is so profound. And so I, I can't imagine my life without that now. Yay. I'm so happy about this. Last question. What is the one most authentic word you would use to describe yourself today? Connector. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and then that's, that's a word that I know that that's a huge part of the calling that God has prepared me for in this season. And he wants me to steward it well. I know that wholeheartedly without one question. So I take that role seriously is I guess the not the maybe the right word I'd use, but I can't meet somebody without thinking, oh, you should meet so-and-so and so-and-so or, and, and sometimes it's connecting to each other and sometimes it's helping people connect to themselves. Um, but connecting is what I do every single day. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I'm going to put all of the, in the show notes, you guys, if you want to find Rebecca after this to look at coaching opportunities and to be connected to this ultimate connector, all that information will be there. And so until next time, you guys keep showing up in your own stories and keep being remorseless. Rebecca, thank you. Thanks. It's fun. <laughs>